This sermon before a greater king was preached by Pastor Tom Wilkins on January 22nd, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church, Tucson. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before or toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and had sent for Paul to hear him speak about the faith in Christ Jesus. And when he had reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent, him, sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do to the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, my, my appeal to you is that you would superintend the preaching of the word. Let the word be clear. I pray that I would not muddy the word so give me help help me to faithfully preach your word Holy Spirit I also pray that you would superintend the ears of our soul that you would come and that you would make a way for the word to get to the very core of us and to change us, that we would leave all the more glorifying Jesus, the Son of God. Christ be exalted 
preaching of your word and the retelling of your story again. Amen. Amen. Well, just briefly before we jump into this, there's a passage out of Luke that's going to inform what's happening in the text. Luke chapter 12, verse 11 and 12. And when they bring you before synagogues, Jesus says to the disciples, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, don't be anxious about, about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's happening right now in the text. The Holy Spirit is present and he's showing Paul what to say. He's giving him the very words to speak. In fact, we have a little bit more instruction in Luke 21, 12 through 18. Again, Jesus saying these words. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by, some, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Well, here's the overarching truth. This is happening in the text. Maybe we could summarize this this morning with this statement. We can stand before the kings of this world, the rulers of this world, or in this particular case, this governor, who, by the way, in our, uh, our experience as Americans, this governor has radical power over the lives of people under his care and his providence. But we're able to stand before kings, these kinds of governors of this world, because we are ruled by the greater king, Jesus. We are in this greater king's kingdom, we're going to find out in this text. We're in God's kingdom. We're in Christ's kingdom, that kingdom that he came to deliver and is delivering and will continue to deliver on the day he finally comes and it is finally established completely. Therefore, we're able to stand before any earthly king, any earthly ruler, and in this case, this seemingly powerful king. My first point this morning, I'm going to use this phrase, lesser king. Before a lesser king, point one, we have in our text this morning, particularly verses 1 through 21, as Paul is brought and now stands before this lesser king, Felix. Antonius Felix, he ruled as governor over the province from where they are currently there in Caesarea. Felix, at first glance, when you read through this, he appears to be level-headed and fair. In fact, he, he gives way for Paul. His friends can come and visit Paul freely. He's under a sense, his penalty in prison, at least carries with it freedoms of like a house arrest would. Seems like more or less a fair, good guy. But Felix, according to history, is very different. 
And knowing him in history will understand when he's mentioned in the text who we're talking about. And then it will completely change often our perception of what's going on in the text. It's surprising, but it's true. Felix is not a good guy. Kent Hughes in his commentary helps us by quoting the Roman historian Tacitus. Felix was a master of cruelty and lust. That's one of the Roman winning historians writing about Felix. His reputation among the Romans as one of their rulers is he personally is unruly. Cruel, full of lust in his executing of his rule. He was a scheming politician, a brutal leader, quote, repeatedly crucifying the leaders of various uprisings. Crucifier. And sadly, his brutality has led to a massive problem under his reign of this providence of insurrection and unrest in the providence. You know what tyranny and at the bottom of tyranny is? Let the tyrant rule and uprisings will rise and then the tyrant brings the hammer all the more. At a whim, Felix could and did summarily execute a man without even batting an eye. This is not a good guy. And Paul is brought before this lesser king, Felix, And now we have in verses 1 through 9 charges brought against Paul. Let's consider the charges. There's two of them in particular. If you're wondering what are the charges, there's a lot said about this, but there are two charges being brought. Charges being brought against Paul by the Jewish high priest Ananias and some of the Sanhedrin elders. They have hired a big gun spokesperson, lawyer, Tertullus. He's skilled at his craft. He's a trained lawyer in this area. And, he is, and so he knows the system. He knows with whom he's speaking. And he brings these charges on their behalf. And there are two political charges. Sedition, meaning that conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of the state. Sedition. And attempt the attempt of desecrating the temple. And their aim in bringing these charges against Paul and before Felix is the execution of Paul. That this man would be put to death. That's their goal. That's their aim. Now sometimes when we're reading the scriptures, what we find out, and we know this, we know this about the way at least the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees conducted their trials, they were always breaking out against the rules. They weren't even following their own rules in the proceeding. But we know from history, they're actually following all the rules. Hence they have this well-spoken Slick guy, as Tim called him this morning. Talk about slippery and slimy with his words. Uh, you all are familiar with this when that politician is promising you the sun and free beer on campus. You already know something's up. Well, in this case, they've done this and they're doing this according to the law, real charges against this man, Paul. But yet we find here in verse 10, the governor turning and giving the nod to Paul and letting Paul speak his defense. And Paul wisely, he falls into quorum as well. He falls into, uh, he intentionally follows the rules. He addresses respectfully 
this lesser king. He gets the nod from Felix to answer the charges. And yet we immediately find in Paul's answer in these texts when we look at them, you've been ruling this kingdom, this area for years, and you can verify that's only been 12 days. Paul begins to present facts in his defense, and he is not guilty of the crimes. Felix, it won't take you long to discover this. Consider the facts. You've heard the argument, but look at the facts. Paul was innocent. The facts proved it out. Paul will go and make a, also a summary comment about this in verse 16, that he always takes pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. What Paul is saying, he wholeheartedly believes. He knows even before the men that are before him, even before this governor who has this kind of power over him, he is innocent. But Paul admits to one thing that he did do in verse 21. In his defense, and after a lengthy explanation of his defense, he says in verse 21, other than this one thing, in other words, okay, I'm guilty of this, that while I was with them in their court, I cried this. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial with you today. Paul admits. Paul admits this one thing. But what's interesting about his admission is it's not making him guilty of either of the charges that they brought against Paul. Paul is saying both charges brought against me are false. I am not stirring up the riot, nor did I desecrate the temple, but I am guilty of this one thing, speaking out about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm guilty of that. And neither of those make him guilty of the two that are brought against him. So Paul makes this his cheerful defense. Now, you and I, in this case, you've got to put yourself in Paul's shoes. You know the facts. And you know that you can actually present facts. And so maybe privately, it's going well with you. Like, look, I, this is all false. Here's the reason why. So you have this private sense of it's going okay. It's going to be okay. But there is something else at work in the fact that Paul is cheerful in his defense. Remember the context. This is a brutal leader he stands before. It's not some lower court case in the county of Tucson that he's standing before. It's actually not even standing before all three branches of the United States government. None of them have the summary power to murder you on the spot at any whim, at their choice. Imagine the grace that's still intact in America. There is no one in authority that has this kind of instantaneous, away with you kind of power. And Paul stands before Felix who has this power. And the scripture says, I love this. Paul is helping Luke write this story, this account of Acts. You can almost sense that they're looking at one another, and Paul's like, yes, write this. And Luke's like, I remember you doing this, and I remember the stories of this. You were able, amazingly, in that moment to cheerfully offer your defense. This doesn't mean that there's presence of worry or some degree of 
fear. Paul talks about before he's uh, with, the, uh, with the Corinthians. I was with you, fear and trembling. There's another moment where he says, we were fearing for our lives. I'll bet Paul knew any second he could feel the blade. Any moment he would certainly feel the ropes. Give it a little bit of time. He'll feel the piercings. Another crucifixion in his own. And yet something undergirds this man. Something bears this man up. It's not simply the facts that he's innocent. Something bears this up. Paul is before this lesser king. His life hangs in the balance. And he is in the hands of a man who could end all of this foolishness, all of this proceeding, if he were actually to turn in that moment and nod not to Paul, but nod to the executioner. And the scene would immediately shift to a familiar one to Paul. Paul would have been bound, driven out of the court, and up some hillside, or to some busy corner in the city, and crucified. End of story. Next case. The Jews get what they want. Felix gets temporarily peace in his little kingdom, and everyone would move on. Paul knows this, and yet he personally can cheerfully make his defense. I believe the text reveals actually an overarching, greater reason he's cheerful in his defense. He's facing life and death, and he has a private, deep-seated hope and joy in a greater king. Oh, he can see it. He can see the slightly juiced eyes from the liquor, from the lifestyle this man lives. Any second, he could take his life. Paul sees the gaze of a greater king over his soul. And in that sense, maybe it's right for Paul to say, he has, in the end, no power over me. The one who has all power of the universe has that kind of power. And it's not you, Felix. That begins to break out, if you could stay in our first section, just briefly, in verses 14 through 16, in his defense. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God our fathers. Don't forget the phrase, according to the way. That's key, I believe, to the whole thing that's happening in his defense. That according to the law and prophets, according to the way. All that the law and prophets spoke of this Savior that would come, Jesus Christ, the one who is the ultimate leader of this way. Paul says, I worship God of our fathers. And he does acknowledge the men that have brought these charges against him, except the, quote, a living hope in God. Paul is saying that, meaning that they follow the law and the prophets in that sense as well. They, they agree with this, but I'm part of the way. Call it a sect, call it whatever you want. We now call it Christianity. Paul follows Christ, a resurrected king. Tucked away in this story and in this drama 
And in this narrative is the greater story. It is a greater drama unfolding. The redemptive narrative begins to unfold in verses 14 through 16, beginning to reveal how it is possible that we, that Paul can, and that we can stand before the kings of this world. It is because we stand in the greater king, Christ the Lord. I do confess this to you, court. I confess this to you. I belong to the way. So Paul, we can say, has courage because King Jesus is with him as well. There is a larger text. The way and him following it is a key moment in this text. But Derek, in a couple of messages back, had preached through a section where in that text we find God's word in Acts 23, 11, those words, the following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. And those words continue to reign over Paul's heart. It does not matter what is about to happen or what could happen. It does not matter what kind of earthly power he faces, which is certainly greater than his own power. But those words of Jesus himself stood by me and said, take courage, I have courage because of that. There's a grander story being revealed. Acts 23, 11 looms large over the scene and it will never, never leave Paul until his last breath. <laughs> It'll never leave him then as well when the resurrection now brings this man back into his body. I, I, I don't even know what to say at this point, but I'll try to say it like this. While Paul's possible cross looms truly over his head, Paul has his eyes fixed on another greater cross. So crucifixions are rampant in this era and in this time. Seen as bloody throughout the whole region. And Felix himself made sure of it. Paul has a greater crucifixion, one that has already occurred. The death and the resurrection of Christ, his Lord. And knowing this, as his cross looms over his head, his soul is at peace and at joy. Ever before Paul now is another greater hilltop on which his Savior bled and died for him. This is the message that Paul bears, and he delivers faithfully every chance he's given. The tension in the court, the tension in the scene is high. What is Felix going to do? What is this king going to do? And a private smile breaks over Paul's soul as he remembers again Golgotha. He will not worry what this lesser king might do to him because his soul is anchored in his king Jesus and what he has already done for him. So in that sense, it does not matter to Paul what Felix is going to do because he has hold he has hold of what Christ has already done for him. This lesser king gave him the nod for him to speak. He could have given the nod for his execution, but in mercy, Christ has given him the eternal nod 
into everlasting life. There was a sweet moment for Paul. Abiding under the wrath of God, the Savior could look at him personally and say, the day is going to come for Paul, not long from this, where he gets to the gates of heaven and the Savior, the Lamb of God, will be waiting for Paul. He's going to give him the nod. Yeah, you come in. Oh, what a great hope we have when we face the kings of this world. Nod away, Felix. Nod away, for my eternal life is not in your hands. It is safely held forever by my King Jesus, the greater King. The law and prophets, they have spoken, and they have laid this hope down for us. Jesus, the King, has come to save. Jesus is nodding to you and to me in the good news, not just to speak, not to provide a defense. He has already spoken, and he has already defended, and so he gives you the nod. He gives me the nod. That's mercy. That's grace. We can stand before the kings of this world. It is because we stand in the greater king, Christ the Lord. And so Paul knows that he really now stands only in the end before one king as well. And then he remembers how Betty did. Luke 21, 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You're going to stand before kings. You're going to stand before magistrates. You're going to stand before rulers. And in this case, you're going to stand before governors that have the power to destroy you. And that will be your opportunity to bear witness to me. So Paul doesn't now just hold on to a private joy. He now gets to speak of the reason for that joy. Empowered by the Spirit, according to Acts 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what to say. Felix and his wife Drusilla, in verse 24, invite him to come. They send for Paul, and Paul speaks of faith in Christ. Acts 21, 15 says, I'll give you a mouth and wisdom with which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So remember, right before Paul is about to open his mouth and speak to this king and his wife, Tortullus is a seriously trained guy, by the way, and he's got a mouth. He's got a serious mouth. His voice will command the room and quickly gain the attention and respect of the court. He is the guy that you need in this case, the one who, uh, that you would pay well for his services. But he does have a mouth, but the problem with Tertullus is he has a mouth without wisdom. He has a mouth that's not divinely given, and he does not have divinely given wisdom. He has earthly wisdom. The guy can speak, but in the end, his words will burn in the ash. But the Holy Spirit grants Paul both a mouth and wisdom. Moses says to the Lord, don't, don't send me. I, I can't speak in so many words. And the Lord said, who made the mouth? Well, here the Holy Spirit has given Paul a mouth. He's not left to his own device or his own demise in this case. 
He's given a divine ability to speak, but he's also given a divine ability to speak wisdom, a manner of speaking superintended by the Holy Spirit with the wisdom from God's throne room. And none of Paul's adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And we know that from this case itself. Paul provides his defense in this wisdom granted by God, empowered by the Spirit. Nobody can answer him. There is no counterpunch coming back from this lawyer. In fact, I'll bet it's safe to say this lawyer, for the first time in his life, realizes, wow, I have never experienced this before. I have nothing I can say. Well, now Felix and his wife Drusilla give Paul the opportunity to speak, and Paul, with that same mouth, full of the Spirit, with divine wisdom, is able to stand again before this earthly king and his wife. This is a curious turn in the story. Look with me in verse 24. Right before, sorry, let's briefly look at verse 22. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, this doesn't mean he's a believer, it means he gets this. He gets that there's this sect within, the, within Judaism called the way, and they've got this guy Jesus that they follow. He's familiar with this. How is he familiar with it? It's because the gospel of Christ is rampant through the region. It's making its way all the way into every single place in society, to the lowest, to the highest. He's familiar with them. He puts them off. This is God's providence, certainly at work. He puts them off. There is no answer that can come to bring further charges against Paul. In fact, he's led providentially. Instead of slaughtering this man where he stood, to actually put him under a lightweight house arrest, still in prison. We know from those closing words of the text, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul is no longer a free man. But after some days, Felix, in verse 24, came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. They sent for Paul. This is not a good couple either. History bears this out. Drusilla is now Felix's third and illicit mistress, wife. She's the daughter of King Agrippa I. She is described as, by those that saw her, unusually beautiful. And at the age of 20, already and currently married to the king of Emesa in Syria, lust and power drove her. Kit Hughes writes that she won Felix's affection with the help of a magician. They even got the guy's name in history. Her ambition and lust equaled that of Felix. This is not a marriage made in heaven. Knowing Felix and his wife now provides Paul a context for how he will preach the gospel to them. How kind of God to know you and I. He knows exactly what we need to hear in the gospel. The gospel is not changed for us, but it is pointed to us, for us. Well, here Paul preaches the gospel to this lust-filled, power-hungry couple. 
they, you, Drusilla, you, Felix, need Jesus Christ to save you. You are personally, morally bankrupt before God as he speaks to them about righteousness and self-control. And by the way, adding self-control and righteousness in the text, commentators help us see self-control in the area of their sexual morality. These are loose people. Multiple marriages, both sides of this couple. You personally are morally bankrupt before God. The judgment of God is coming. You will give account for it. You will not escape your sin. The King of heaven, the God of all, God of all is coming. And he's coming. And he's coming at you in wrath. Now it's here where you and I need to be real careful. Derek, I think led by the Spirit this morning as we talk through this part of the text, said we better be careful even what we say about them. And I've already said some things about them. Meaning we better not be too quick to judge them. This is another case where you and I are completely exposed before the Lord. God's mercy is being handed out to this couple. The story is not being told simply to reveal like, whoa, they are so bad. We already know, fast forward, he doesn't respond. They are really bad. Meaning, no, they're so bad. The Savior, in that sense, through Paul, and in power of the Spirit, goes to them. I would liken it almost like to that moment where Jesus turns to Judas at the Last Supper and offers the bread and wine to him too, knowing what he's about to do. Yeah, they're a bad couple. but God is holding out his mercy to them. He holds out his mercy to you and I. Be careful. The gospel makes a moral claim on Felix and Drusilla. Paul drives the good news home fearlessly. At the drop of a hat, we know Felix in rage could have had him immediately slaughtered. Right where he stood. How dare you speak to us? How dare you speak of my wife? The landscape of Judea was covered with the blood that he had shed. Paul knew this, and it didn't cause him pause even for a second. But it also didn't cause him pause for a second to talk personally to them. Felix and Drusilla, you need a Savior. Paul delivers the gospel clearly and fully. They needed to see that they stood before a holy and righteous judge, but they would not repent. Felix, now we know in the text... Something happens. We know how Felix responds. He's alarmed. Commentators help us understand this. He's terrified suddenly. Felix needed to know that he, a king, if it's right to say this, unto himself, now stood before the sovereign king. All of the blood of his victims possibly began to creep in and paint over his heart of stone. 
The satisfaction that Felix once sought in his greed and lust began to smell of a rotting corpse to him. This is where you and I have to back up again and take warning. We all stand before the righteous king of the universe and his moral claim on our lives cannot be cast aside, dismissed, or suppressed. You may have heard the good news all your life. If I asked you what the gospel was, you could recount it from beginning to end, but your heart may be far from the Lord. But you stand before him nonetheless. Your heart may be far from him, but he is not far from you. There is nowhere I can go to hide my sin from him. We all stand before the Holy One of Israel, Son of God himself, the Son of Man who is high and lifted up on majesty. Felix is at first terrified and alarmed, but he will not respond to God's righteous claim on him. So here's a question about Felix with the reality, the desperate condition of this lesser king's soul before this holy God. What did he do after he sent Paul away? The text here in verse 25 Paul reasoned with, about righteous self-control, the coming judgment. Felix is desperately alarmed, and he sends Paul away from himself. What did he do after Paul left? He'd go and get wasted, numb the voice of God's pending wrath, climb into bed with his sensual mistress, anything crank up the distraction and to get away from this. Any elixir that could dull his soul all the more. Anything to dull the living and active, razor-sharp tip of God's Word, the two-edged sword now piercing the division of his soul and the spirit of his joints and of his joints and marrow and the discerning thoughts and intentions of his heart, according to Ephesians 4.12. Anything to hide This king who had no problem letting it all hang out for all to see a real man in a real time found in real sin doing anything to hide from the all-seeing, searching eye of the holy and righteous king of kings now discerning that no creature, according to Hebrews 4, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom they must give an account. Anything, anything to hide anything, to dull. And yet here in the text, we at least know this, anything to delay. This lesser king now is revealed as guilty and accountable for the king of heaven, and in a sense, and to a degree, he knows it, and yet he delays and will not repent. Verse 26 reveals his heart. It moves from hardness It moves to hardness and dullness, unwilling to respond, moved from being terrified, now seeing that bribes are possible. He can get money from this preacher prisoner. Paul's part of the gospel mission. He knows enough about the way. There's money involved in this. This guy will bring me money. The eyes of his soul were granted a brief glimpse into the holiness of God, and he turns away for money and lust. 
all the more. So now we have to ask about ourselves. Has your heart, has my heart, become dulled and the eyes of your soul become dim? Knowingly caught in sin, unwilling so far to repent. Is the reason now being revealed? Are you putting off repentance? Hebrews 6, 7, same context of the living and active word. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, don't put it off any longer. God says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Jesus says, Behold, I knock. I'm at the door, and I knock. Open the door. Today, you are standing before the holy and righteous King. Even now, He revealing your need for repentance. If you cannot see or hear Him anymore, is it because you've been delaying your conscience has grown hard again, has been closing the eyes and the ears of your heart. Careful what we think of Felix. It didn't take long, maybe even moments. He's terrified. And then, brief delay. He's right back into sin. Today's the day of salvation. He is still here. Don't put it off any longer. Turn to Christ again in repentance. Do it even now. I feel like the Lord just laid this on my heart as I wrote this part last night. Find a quiet place after the service and make that difficult phone call. Repent. Are you terrified? Turn away from your sin but turn to Jesus who removes the terror. Remember how Paul is able to joyfully, cheerfully give his defense because Paul moved from that moment of being terrified to now his heart and his soul at peace in Christ. Find forgiveness and grace and peace that will rule your soul. Rejoice. We are right now before the great king of heaven. And he is good. And he's here in mercy. Rick, if you could come. It's true. We can stand before lesser kings on this earth. Because we are in and brought before the greater king. And if we are able to stand before the lesser kings of this world, because we have the greater king, then who or what are you afraid of? What is keeping you? What is holding you back? You know, as a parent, maybe 
You're scared to death to talk to your wayward child. How is it that we've become so afraid of our children? I'll tell you when the fear of my kids started. They were about 20 seconds old. I was scared to death. But I also remember that moment where I needed to confront them and I would delay. I remember the moment I needed to go and love them and I delayed because I was scared of what they thought of me. I had forgot about the greater king and what he thought of me. Well, this certainly informs that, doesn't it? We always joke about our kids being little tyrants and kings in their home, don't we? It's a funny thing for parents to laugh about. You know what? But I'm also that tyrant and king as well in my home. I remember hollering, hollering off down the hallway in my edict. Kids didn't respond right away by bringing me alms and food and <laughs> obedience that I demanded in that moment. And so I yelled back down the hallway. What? When I say something, aren't you going to listen? And Lisa peeks around the corner. Isn't that, is that the kind of dad you want to be? Why are we afraid of our kids? How about that boss or that board? You know, we're not facing a king that's going to threaten us or destroy our lives, but that boss or the board has the power to change our career by ending it. That's real. And I'm not minimizing the fear. How is it that we are willing to trust the king of the universe before the kings of this world and yet be afraid of losing our jobs at times. I don't know what it's like for you. I've got two friends in El Paso who literally before their bosses had to make a decision. Were they going to keep bringing their Bible to work or were they going to park it at home or they were gone? Real life stories, one in the fire department and one that worked for the city. By the way, they kept taking their Bibles to work and neither one of them lost their jobs because there's a greater king at work. You know, there is a greater provider for you if you lose your career. What is it? What is it? What are we afraid of? What future tyranny has you alarmed? Derek recommends this book. I haven't read it yet, but I will now. He said, man, now would be a good time to recommend Jerry Bridges' book, The Joy of Theory. You would stand with me. Let's pray together.